Philippians uh, chapter 1. Now, as, as often, when, we ha- when time allows us, we do the proverb of the day. So, kind of, if you, you know, go right in the center of your Bible, you should run into Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs come after Psalms. We're going to be in Proverbs 10, starting with verse 13 in the Old Testament. It says, Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. So the first one, wisdom, is found on the lips of him who has understanding. Understanding of what? Well, the Bible in a few different locations tells us that the fear of the Lord, the understanding of the Lord, the reverence and the awe of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. How else can we understand the natural sciences, the physical sciences, without the one the architect, the designer of those sciences, he set everything in motion. And if you look hard enough, or you look, it's pretty easy, the Bible does talk about the expanding universe. The Bible does talk about the earth being round before, in the Middle Ages, they were saying that you would fall off if you sailed too far. It's because they weren't reading their Bibles. This stuff has been in here for thousands of years. But the rod, the rod is on the back of him who is devoid of understanding. He who has no understanding will fail. It's just a matter of time. And the rod is usually understand as, as the rod of correction. Okay? The wise store up knowledge. The wise, it, it's interesting because it's like knowledge is a tangible item that they store up. But the wise take knowledge and store it up as if it's a treasure under lock and key, under uh, great care. So when they need that knowledge, they can take from it. A lot of word pictures, especially in the Old Testament. And they can file it for a day that's needed. Hopefully it's used every day. But the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. And that's self-explanatory. Again, we're going to see that our Proverbs study, coincidentally, or God coincidentally, is going to coincide with our New Testament study because we're going to talk about wisdom and what the Bible says about that and foolishness. The last time we finished up the book of James, which is probably one of the best books for taking an introspective look at ourselves, for looking at our own hearts. And today we're going to start 1 Corinthians. And what I always do is, when we start a new book, kind of do the who, what, where, why, and how, so you understand when you read this, you have um, an an idea of what you're reading. There's a panoramic, uh, panoramic view before you go into it. So, 1 Corinthians, who wrote it? The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth that he founded during his second missionary journey. And if you remember our Acts study, we, we went through this, the different journeys that he went on and the different churches that he founded. When and where? The letter was written around A.D. 55 to A.D. 56. That's 0055, not 1955. <laughs> From Ephesus during the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. Why did he write it? Well, it was a corrective letter. I kind of came up with the three Ds. Not like three D's where I'm going to pass out red and green glasses to you, but the three D's. Number one, disputes were a problem in this church. Discipline was an issue that had to be dealt with. And there were doctrinal issues that Paul had to straighten out. The three D's. Now, when you study this and you look at, as we go through the the scriptures, you'll see some cues from the Apostle Paul. It does appear that 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the Holy Spirit has preserved those letters for us, but there may have been at least two or three or four other letters 
that went back and forth between the church of Corinth and the Apostle Paul. At the time, Corinth was one of the most important cities in Greece. It was the Isthmus to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Say that four times fast. And again, we went through the book of Acts. The best way I could describe it is if you look at northern Greece, it kind of comes down in an hourglass shape and it gets really skinny. And the Peloponnesian Peninsula is, is southern Greece. You had Macedonia and you had Achaia. Well, right at that hourglass, right at that waistline, was, the, was Corinth, the city of Corinth. And it became very lucrative because to sail around the Peloponnesus was very difficult. It was very treacherous. Um, it was a, a very hard sail. So what, the, what they would do is the shipmasters would dock their boats on the, on the east side, right? And then they would drag it westward across the land, which was only a few miles, using logs or some type of um, capabilities to get that ship across the, the land and then put it back in the water on the other side. Of course, if you tax that, it can become very lucrative. So this is what you're dealing with in this particular Corinth area. Now, a city with status, with that also comes vice. All the big cities have a vice squad, right? The city of Corinth boasted Aphrodite's temple, which boasted a thousand prostitutes. So there was a lot of sexual immorality in this area. And the term, the Greek term, Corinthiazomai, meant to act like a Corinthian, and it was a derogatory term. We know that even today you say, you're a Cretan. Crete, the island of Crete, also had a bad reputation, so people would call each other Cretans. Tragically, the decadent culture of Corinth crept into the church at Corinth. And I think studying 1 Corinthians, we'll see that we can look at our society and things that go on here and kind of see the same thing happen. So without further ado, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's writing to saints. Hmm. Some may, if you're not really familiar with the scripture, you might be confused and you might say, gee, I thought saints were dead people that after hundreds of years the church says, hey, they were pretty good and they venerate them. Well, Paul's not writing to dead people. He's writing to people who are alive. Saints are those folks who have repented of their sins and called on Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. Most people in this church are saints, believe it or not, according to God's word. The word saint is hagias in the Greek, and at its core, it means to be set apart, in parentheses, for the service of deity. The root of this word also gives rise to other terms, holiness and sanctification, Holiness is just, and sanctification are a process of setting us apart from the world and corrupting influences to the service of our God. The word sanctification is a holy process. Now, let's look at the believer's life. First is positional sanctification, a little theology here. This is by the Holy Spirit at conversion. Repent of your sins, you, you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. God gives you a part of him to reside in you. It's pretty neat. So you have positional sanctification upon conversion. Then you have progressive sanctification, which is a process. You've heard the expression, be patient with me, I'm a work in progress, right? We have that sanctification. Hopefully, when 10 years go by as a believer, we look back and say, I'm a different person than when I first was called by Christ. So you, we hope 
And we pray that we're progressively sanctified if we allow God to do that work in us. And third is that final sanctification where all sin is removed. The believer doesn't have to struggle anymore with sin. When a believer dies, they go to be with the Lord. And that sin element, that flesh, that carnal nature is stripped from us for eternity. So whether by death or by the Lord coming back for his people in the rapture. You see, the Corinthians didn't fully realize who they were in Christ. They allowed the pagans to influence them instead of vice versa. And I've got to ask you a question. Who influences who in your life? Think about that. Think about your friends. What kind of, you have a secular job, your coworkers. Think about, you know, family members. Who influences who in your life? That's important. We can look at the Corinthians, but make the same application for ourselves. To me, it's because I got this, I like this kind of stuff, but I think about electricity, an alternator, alternating current. The electrons are either going to flow one way, okay, the current is going to flow one way or the other. And alternating current, there is no static. Once that circuit is closed and the electric is flowing, it's either going to go this way or it's going to be pushed back that way. And you see going back and forth. So as a believer, when you're out, when you're out of church, are you influencing other people? Are you bringing light into their life? Or are you allowing those in darkness to affect you and pollute you? And we see this in the world. You know, the media loves to find a Christian. You just saw this thing with the South Carolina governor. You know, he says he's a Bible-believing evangelical Christian. And they found out he had an, not an affair. That sounds nice. It's an affair. He had an adulterous relationship for years with, with another woman. And he kept it quiet. And sometimes they get annoyed because the media loves to find the hypocritical Christians. But you know what? In a way, they're right. They don't know the Lord, and they're looking at us, and our example is pretty poor at times. So you know what? They, I, I get what they're saying here. If you're going to live that type of lifestyle, don't mar Christ's name. And you see this with the Corinthians. Verse 4, I thank my God, the Apostle Paul says, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, in line with really Jesus' way of dealing with wayward folks, we saw revelation with the seven churches. He would encourage them first and say, I know your love, your works, your patience, but this I have against you. So Jesus would exhort people, try to build them up, and then he would say, well, but this is a problem that you need to fix. And the Apostle Paul's doing the same thing. He's giving the good news first. He's truly thankful for them. This was an exhortation to wake up to their calling and who God them set them up to be. Let's just go through the scripture and see that the Corinthian people, the Corinthian believers were really blessed. A few things. Number one, they were enriched in spiritual knowledge and utterance. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 uh, through 14 chapters and see that. Uh, two, they were saved by the grace of God. He called them into fellowship with his son. That's an honor. Three, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. And four, they came up short in no gift. These were a talented and gifted group of believers. If you would have walked into that church, 
2,000 years ago, or give or take, you would see a, a church that was very talented and gifted. But you know what? Whatever they had, we have that today. Let me digress for a moment. This might be maybe a little humorous. How many people are familiar with Prince William and Prince Harry of England, right? <laughs> Representing back there. Um, basically, you have the younger of the two brothers, Prince Harry. Now, Prince Harry's life was, well, shall we say, characterized by scandals and trouble and always getting himself into some type of trouble. I can picture the royal family, and some of it has leaked out in the media, but a few backdoor sessions. The doors are closed. The royal family gets together with Prince Harry and says, Prince Harry, depending on what happens, okay, the circumstances, you are in line for the throne of England. Look at the way you're behaving. This is not fitting for someone of royalty. And guess what? The Corinthians were also royalty. And Paul is saying the same thing. It's corrective, but it's also exhortative. What are you guys doing? We were adopted into the family of God. You are put here in the middle of this pagan city to influence these, these people. Look at the way you're behaving. It's disgraceful. Now let's get personal, believers. Fast forward 2,000 years later. We at Calvary Chapel Crossfields, any of the American churches, the world churches, the Christian churches, it is disgraceful for us. We're royalty. But sometimes as believers, we don't act like it. And Paul's saying, guys, listen, you've got a calling here. What are you doing with your lives? The beauty of this letter is it's corrective, but it's also encouraging. And I see that in the scripture. You see, it's very simple for me, if I wanted to grow my church, to do what some of these other preachers do. Just say the good things. God loves you. Hey, do you know what? You're wonderful. Oh, look at that smile. You've got the look. And pump you guys up for 45 minutes. But that's wrong. There's corrective and there's encouraging. Yes, he has a 60,000-seat uh, stadium that he fills, okay, because all he does is say happy things to the folks, and they like it. They feed off of it, but they're shallow. The Bible says that we're to be encouraged, but we're also to be corrected, okay? We need, as Christians, to start rising to the high calling the Lord has given us. Do you realize he's given me and you his precious gift of salvation, and better yet, he says, freely you have received, give it to others. What are we doing with the gospel? Personally, in my prayer life, I say, you know what, Lord? The angels could do a far better job than me. You know, use them. They're awesome. But he said, no, I've given it to you. That is a, an honor for us to be able to give that gift out. To further the kingdom of heaven, the love, you know, love is the is fruit of the spirit. Number one, love, joy, peace. The love that we have that the Lord gives us, that supernatural love to be given out to others. So we need to start rising to the high calling that the Lord has for us. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions or quarrels among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Chuck Smith. I can only listen to Charles Stanley on the radio. I have the John Corson Bible that I sleep with under my pillow every night. <laughs> and I've heard these things. Oh, wait a minute, I didn't read that right. He says, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. 
It's the same circus 2,000 years later, just different clowns. We are the same, right? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, the Apostle Paul says, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Paul doesn't want to be caught up in it. Yes, there were a group that said, we love the Apostle Paul. We can only receive from him. He's the only one that could minister to me. And Paul's saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's divisive. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul's alerted to divisions and schisms within the church. The cure is for us all to speak the same thing. Paul says in other letters that we should be all of the same mind, the mind of Christ, that we focus on Christ. We're supposed to all be on the same team. You know, secularists never have to fear of Christians taking over America, voting in some evangelical, and by some stretch of the imagination, the Christians are going to Christianize America. We're too divided. I saw this figure twice. I don't know who, who counted these things, but it, worldwide there are 28,000 sects or little minutiae differences of Christianity. Christianity today has become what? It's become a cult of personality. It was a kind of catchy tune that was sang some years ago, but it's true. It's become a club. It's become a culture. The focus is moving away from the Lord and his word and towards man. And the world, they see us as divided, a hypocritical bunch. What type of examples are we setting? And we can look at the Corinthian church, and it's, it's so easy for us today as believers. We have the whole codified Bible. Look at the children of Israel. Boy, they were really messing up. Look at the Corinthians. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like those Corinthians. But has things really changed? A lot of the world has infected a lot of the decadent culture, not just in Corinth, but in America, has infected the church. Sometimes the world and the church are kind of blurred. When I was a kid in school, they taught us those Venn diagrams where you have the two circles and where they overlap is like a third set, a subset. You know, where are we? Do we look like the world? Do we look like carnality? Or do we look like what God is supposed to be reflecting in us? Verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, his goal, his mandate was to preach the good news of salvation and everything else was just ancillary. It was subordinate. You know, it's so refreshing to me when I see missionaries come up because they don't have time for all those schisms and bickerings, etc. You know, they're working hard. There's a, a very hard field that has to be broken up in missions, depending on where you go. They stick together. They stick together and they have unity in God and His Word. They don't have time to kick back, put their feet up, and complain about little minutia of differences and denominational issues. But they come together in prayer and the Word and for survival. The cure for division is to be unified under the word and prayer and not following of a man. You could look at divisions in any church. And in a lot of churches, you'll see factions and cliques and divisions. Heck, we've had them here. But what's the cure for it? Those folks who are in the middle of the, of the drama, if you took them aside and asked them what they learned from the, the Gospel of Luke that we went through or Acts or Colossians or Revelation, they'll look at you like a deer in headlights because they're not unified under the word. They're doing their own thing, and that's why they're divided, and that's why there's divisions. Verse 18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And he's quoting the Old Testament, Isaiah 29, verse 14. So, how is the message of the cross foolishness? Well, of course, we don't believe that because we're in the other camp. But the world looks at us and it is foolishness. Why? Especially in America. We are so success-driven. We're maddened with success in this country. Education is a God that we worship. Success is a God that we worship. Those are the altars that we bow down to a lot in America. The cross is foolishness. Why? Because the world says, wait a minute. I can't do it through my own abilities and achievements. It's not by human pride. That's why it's foolishness to the world. They're like, You see, God levels the playing field. You could have any educational level, any ability level, any amount of money, high or low, and it levels the playing field for salvation. Beware of any religion that practices elitism or Gnosticism or works-based and predicated upon man's ability. He says those who are perishing, meaning to lose utterly or to be lost, those that scoff at God's plan and God's way of salvation by the cross are default perishing unless they repent. And we're going to talk in a little bit how God's plan was genius. You really study God's message of salvation and it's a it's genius plan. God's path to salvation creates a sharp dichotomy, the ones perishing and the ones being saved. It's similar... Um, pictures, allusions in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. You've got the wheat and you've got the tares. You've got the sheep and you've got the goats. You've got the ones on the right hand and the ones on the left hand. No different. The ones perishing are hellbound spirits because they're rebelling against God's plan. They look at the cross and they say, that's absurd. But the second group are those who are being saved. Now, the message of the cross is interesting. Here's one group that are perishing and like, that's, that's so stupid and ignorant. It's ridiculous. And you see... You know, you can look at all the different religions of the world and everyone's like, hey, whatever you want to do. Once you talk about the cross, it's offensive, it's absurd, it's ridiculous to the world. They don't understand it. But the second group, the message of the cross, does something incredible. It's regenerative. It's alive. The message of the cross is the key to everything, all spiritual understanding. You look at the cross and you understand the prophets. You look at the cross, you understand why God gave the law. You look at the cross and you understand Genesis through Revelation. It's the key to the power of God wrought through the Holy Spirit to heal, to save, to prophesy, to do miracles, etc. And I don't mean the manufactured ones. Verse 20, he says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you have three different groups here. He looks at the wise or the wise man, the scribe, and the disputer or the philosopher and the debater. And you have to understand the culture at the time. The scribe, that was the best person that the Jewish culture could put up. They were human copy machines. You know, they would, 
every jot or tittle had to be perfect when they copied it, uh, God's word. Otherwise, they'd rip it up and start all over again. They knew the law inside and out. They were meticulous. The disputer, the philosopher, the debater. You know, the Greeks built a whole culture around philosophy and intelligence and intellect. Okay? The question is, he has have any of them found God or had a relationship with God through their intellect? No. It's never going to happen that way. God will never be known through human ability or intellect. It's not going to happen. The message of salvation, the cross. What is the cross? It's basically this. In the Old Testament, you had the sacrifices. You had the innocent lamb. You know, they were shed. The, the, the blood was shed every day. And, you know, they, um, there was a process in the temple. You know, even in the Passover, the, the innocent lamb, his blood was shed, and they would put it around the lintels and the doorposts, and, the, and they wouldn't die when the last plague came. So we see this, this pattern. Rahab put the scarlet cord out of her window. This is all Old Testament. And by that scarlet cord, the children of Israel, when they were invading Jericho, would see that she was to be spared. So you always saw this scarlet cord of redemption throughout the scripture. So Jesus came, ultimately, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the perfect Lamb. In the Old Testament, you couldn't give the priest a, 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 a deformed Lamb with a gimp leg or a runny eye or patches in his skin. He, they had to be perfect. And there was a meaning behind all that. So Jesus came as the Lamb. He was perfect. He lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He did miracles. And he died and he shed his blood once and for all as the sacrifice for sin. That's the message of the cross. He bore the sins of the world upon him. Okay? And, you know, never to be remembered again by God. But some will say this is a stumbling block. It's too simple. Too simple. It's too grotesque. It's too selfless. It's an insult to me. I am a man of ability and intellect. You're telling me that this simple, grotesque, picture. All I have to do is believe and I'm saved. It's insulting to my intelligence. The Jews of the first century, all they could think about was a conquering Roman Messiah, but they forgot about the suffering Messiah in the prophecies of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. The Greeks, the Gentiles, their quest for knowledge, they rejected it as simple. No human effort could be put into it. But you see these pictures all throughout scripture. Remember, what is it? Second Kings 5. Uh, the captain of the Syrian army, Naaman, had leprosy. And those, um, I believe it was his, the, one of his servants said to him, if you go to Israel, there is a prophet in Israel, Elisha, and he can heal you from, his, from your leprosy. So he went with his entourage, you know, and his following and his, his contingent. And they came up to the home of where Elisha the prophet was. And Elisha said to his servant, go outside and tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times, he'll be clean. Naaman was furious a man of his stature and greatness. First of all, the prophet wouldn't even address him. And second of all, he sent him to wash in that dirty Jordan River. It's all recorded in scripture. There's so much better rivers in Damascus, the Farpar and the, the Adamah, whatever the other river was. Naaman was furious because he was a man of greatness. And this is this humiliating way for me to be cleaned of leprosy. And his servants, it was always the servants, the lowly base servants. Hey, go to Elisha. And his servants came to him and said, if the prophet would have come out of the house and told you to do something great to be healed, would you have done it? And Naaman said, absolutely. Naaman, just go wash in the Jordan and get clean. His servants, the lowly people, talked him, sent him to him, and he went to the Jordan, dipped seven times, and it said his skin was as the flesh of a child. He was completely healed. But it was offensive to Naaman, and it's offensive to this world, and it's offensive to our culture. What about us? What about our culture? 
What do we think of the cross? Some Christians might even be embarrassed to share the cross, especially with all the intellectuals out there. It's a little embarrassing because they're going to they're laugh at me. And I don't want to be laughed at. I don't like to be rejected. Or what about those who come to the cross or don't come to the cross? If you have the idea that you're too above that, God can't use you. Sadly, or sadly, he's got to let you go. But if we come to God and we're humble and say, wow, you, you want to use me? I, 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 I don't know. I'm afraid. I don't know if I can do this. But Lord, I'm willing to trust you. And God goes, you passed. I could use you. You see the difference? That's why Jesus said, we, we had this baby dedication. Jesus said, unless you are converted and be like little children. What are little children like? They're innocent. They're trusting. They're eager to listen. They got those big bug eyes and they look at you and they listen. God wants us to be like little children and stop being so full of ourselves. It all comes together. But now I want to get to the sheer genius of God's plan. Number one, salvation is a simple message. Simple to understand. Genius point number one. Because it's simple, the ignorant, right? The children, the, the less educated, all the way up to the most brilliant person in the world, they can all get it. It's a level playing field. That's brilliant. He can include all of them into salvation. The second point of genius is God's son took the punishment for our sins. You see, God is a God, especially you see it in the Old Testament, he's a God of justice. He demands justice. He is perfect. And nothing that is sinful or, or injustice can stand in his presence. So what he did was he devised this plan. His son would take the punishment. It's like a deferred, you know, um, I can't even think of the word, but it's a, he's a substitute. God's son came and said, I will take all the sins of the world upon me. So God's justice could be meted out, but not on us. Christ took that, that punishment that we all deserved. He took our place on that cross. So that's the second point of genius. He can show grace, which means getting something, even though you deserve punishment, but I'm going to shower you with grace. And his justice is still being satisfied. Brilliant plan. Third, God's son took 100% of the work needed for this salvation. You know what that eliminates? It eliminates a caste system. Oh, yeah, everybody's heard about the caste system in India. There's no caste system here today. We don't look at certain folks making a certain amount of money and look at them as less than ourselves. There's a caste system. is a silent bigotry, uh, bigotry. Okay? But what God says is, think about this. If, if salvation was works-based and I've got all the money and all the resources, well, heck, I could build hospitals for the poor. You know, I could feed the hungry. I could do all these great things. And, and I could look at God and go, hey, you got to put me at, at the best seat in the house. And those who have nothing, no ability, disabled, they can't do anything. Where do they get to go in the back? But the genius of God's plan is that the works is done by his son, not done by us. Right? Ephesians tells us, by grace we have been saved and not of works. It is the gift of God. Don't boast in yourselves. Right? It's nothing that you did. It's not human effort. So three points of genius in God's plan. I have a friend who, who told me, you know, grew up in the United States, you know, decent job, the whole deal. And he said, I went to Nicaragua on a missions trip. It was my first missions trip. And he said, I, I got off the plane and we went into the village and we looked at these kids dressed in rags. We looked at the food that we were eating. We looked at the, if you could call them homes that they were living in. And he said, I felt sorry for them, pity. 
me American, you Nicaraguan, pity. It was so cool that he said, he goes, after a while, I saw the joy in their hearts, I saw the, 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 the close family bonds, and he said, I started to feel sorry for me living in America. Now listen, I'm not trash in America, I love my country, but with wealth comes a lot of things that are negative comes a spoiled generation, an entitled generation. I'm concerned about our kids. What are our kids learning? What are they learning from us? Do we just, every time they cry like little babies, we give them something? Or do we teach them value? Do we teach them what it means to work? Do we teach them what it means to, again, something to have value, right? Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh, no flesh should glory in his presence. But of whom you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And whenever you see something italicized, he's quoting from another scripture. Um, most of the time here, it's the Old Testament. I could just say this. I think you get the picture. I think it's, the language is very clear. He was talking to the Corinthians and saying, listen, you guys weren't chosen to be a church or called out of the world to be Christians because you had some great abilities, the Corinthians became arrogant and haughty. He's like, whoa, start to remember where you came from, where God found you when he called you. But I could just look at this scripture and I could tell you it summarizes my life. Standing before you is another example of foolishness used for God's glory. And I say that with all truthfulness. If you knew me as a child, then I have my parents here. I was a scared child. I was a confused teen. I was a young adult who made all the wrong choices, and I wasn't saved. And prior to coming to Christ, I was a prideful man. And there's still some pride in there that needs to be worked on, and I'm just being honest. I believe in transparency. But after much chiseling and much work by the Lord, I stand before you as the senior pastor of a community church that supports missionaries all over the world, actively involved in the community, and people call me all the time to know God's will or to ask for advice. And you know... Sometimes I have to step back, and I just know me as Joe. I remember me as that little eight-year-old kid, and I have to laugh. I'm like, Lord, you really chose the foolish things of the world to do your will. There's no reason to be prideful, you know, because you can't stand before God and compare abilities. He gave us those abilities. Well, I guess I could say that God has a sense of humor. If he could make a donkey talk in numbers then certainly he can use me. <laughs> no matter what heights that God takes us here, we will do well in spiritual matters if we observe the following. Taking this chapter in its totality. Love the Lord. Love people, or do the best you can to love people. Stay humble. Never forget where you came from. And if you're going to glory or boast, glory in the Lord and not of ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for your word.